0: Welcome, everybody, to The Hopeful Majority. I'm Manu Meal. and today's question, what can America learn from other countries? And today I'm gonna to have Daniel DiMartino on, who is a Venezuelan immigrant that migrated to the United States in 2016. He's gonna actually talk to us about what his perspective is on economics and policy. In fact, specifically, we're gonna talk about the socialist experiment in Venezuela. And I'm very curious about the conversation on economics. Listen, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast, because this is a platform and a space for productive discourse on issues that matter. And so let's get on with our conversation with Daniel DiMartino. Socialist, democratic socialist, fascist, These words get thrown around all the time in our politics today, in our discourse today, between people. If you pay any attention to Twitter, and by the way, for your sanity, I hope you don't, but let's say you do these words are being constantly thrown around. And I want to dig deeper because I think we need to have nuanced conversations about what is socialism? What is fascism? What is democratic socialism? What are the right economic policies in our country? I mean, folks are hurting right now across the board. I think Americans are either very disaffected from our politics or very resentful of our politicians because I think that people want their problems to be solved. And yet discourse is not happening. So What does a hopeful majority do about it? Well, as you know, I had to ask my friend, Daniel DiMartino, who is an immigrant from Venezuela, came to the United States in 2016. He's an economist. He studied at Columbia University. He has a deep, deep history, understanding, lived experience with a socialist regime out in Venezuela, which caused his family to come and immigrate to the United States. And I wanted to have a conversation with Daniel. Admittedly, as he says, he's a Republican. I wanted to have a conversation, a nuanced one with Daniel about his life, his background, but importantly, what does he think about the notion of socialism? I wanted to to break it down. And by the way, in the future, we'll have another conversation we'll bring on somebody from a more liberal perspective to talk to us about fascism because that's another word that gets thrown around in our politics and our discourse. And whether or not you have an understanding for any of these concepts, I want us to have those hopeful conversations about these very important topics at a moment where we're disincentivized to have productive dialogue. Because remember, we're trying to pull off the most ambitious, remember, I didn't say worse, I didn't say greatest, most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity, 330 million Americans, all looking differently than each other with different ideas, different religious backgrounds, different ethnicities, heavily armed, if some might say, trying to make it work, trying to live in a world in which we feel respected, where our voices are heard, where we feel like we can see each other's humanity. That is an unprecedented feat. And yet what it requires is for us to be able to understand, see each other across difference, see each other's stories, see each other's humanities. And Daniel and I are going to get into this conversation and I will warn you, it's a little nerdy. It's a little economic-y, as my AP econ teacher used to say in high school. It's a little focused on the nitty gritty, but then we also zoom back And we span the concepts of socialism. What does the United States have to learn from a country like Venezuela, which is the concept and question of this show? What do we have to learn from foreign countries? And I would love your feedback. I would love your challenge, because as you know, in the hopeful majority, we want to push our guests. We want to have those nuanced, honest dialogues. Remember that when it comes to our economic policy in the United States, or frankly, any policy for that matter. The level of nuance and depth that we're going to get into this one just does not seem to exist anywhere else in our political discourse when it comes to our politicians. And how can you break down a complex concept like free trade or populism or globalization or an understanding of nativism in three-minute sound bites that are purely placated for the base? And that's what we're trying to interrogate. That's what we're trying to understand. And that's the focus of this show. Of this episode. So, I want you to stick with me through the nitty gritty because we have a conversation about a lot of people feeling disaffected with globalization. We have a conversation about the Rust Belt. We have a conversation about the hollowing out of the middle class. We talk about what policies Daniel might think are necessary to actually give people a sense of purpose. And that's the word that I want to end this quick little tirade on before we get into the interview conversation with Daniel, which is purpose. You'll notice at the end of this conversation, Daniel and I have a deep exchange, a personal one, about the fact that we as a country and as a people need to find our purpose as much as we can, because that's necessary for us to not only think about where we fit in the world, but to think about how we push forward, because that purpose gives us a sense of direction. And direction is necessary not only in any economy, but any society, especially one as different, as unique, as interesting as America. Let's get on with our conversation with Daniel DiMartino. I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Daniel DiMartino, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir.
1: Thank you, Manu.
0: Hey, uh, where are you right now, by the way? You're you're kind of all over the place. I see you traveling a lot. Where where are you at right now specifically?
1: Um I'm in my place in New York City.
0: Okay, in New York City. What's what's yes. the situation in New York, by the way? I mean, I know that people don't know your story yet, but I hear, I hear that like These days, there's a lot of narratives on both the left and the right about New York City. There's stories coming out about Mayor Eric Adams, the immigration crisis. Um, What's the situation in New York City, given given your very- Yeah, I actually know uh, a lot about that. I know a lot
1: about that because I went to the Migrant Intake Center and interviewed uh, several of the migrants there. Um, It's right in front of where I work at the Manhattan Institute in Grand Central. And, um, you know, a lot of them are from Venezuela, but several of them are from other Latin American countries and also from Africa and from really all over the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really a disaster because what you have is a lot of people who are coming mm-hmm. here um, that they will tell you and they told me uh, they came here because other people were already given free shelter and they're literally coming from other countries because of the free shelter policies. The only place... You know, the only time in U.S. history where we've given free housing and food and all these other things to incoming migrants is now, you know, I, you know, people tell me you're not compassionate or whatever, but the reality is that New York City has had illegal immigration for as far as it has existed. The only time it's become a problem is now because this is the only time we've given them free housing. That's the only thing that changed.
0: So, Um, so let me, let me ask you this because it's interesting. We went from New York city to your immediate thought was I went to the migrant center there. Uh, Tell us like, why specifically do you care about immigration and migration is one of the key issues? Like out of all the things you could have picked in New York city, that's where your head went. Why is that?
1: Well, I'm I'm an immigrant. I'm from Venezuela. Um, I came to the United States in 2016. Um, I guess, you know, I, I'm doing a PhD in economics at Columbia University, and I'm specifically focused on immigration. I like more the topic of high school migration and, and legal immigration policies, uh, but kind of like the migrant crisis just jumped uh, into the city. And so now it's it's a topic to, to talk about. But, um, you know, I, I guess I always cared about immigration, even before I started studying it, because my grandparents were also immigrants in Venezuela. Uh, Where did they come from? Venezuela- uh, from Italy and Spain. They immigrated in the 50s to
0: Venezuela. Um, Why Venezuela? I'm curious, because I know a lot of people at that time yeah, went to sure, the US. yeah.
1: There, there were a lot of Italians and Spaniards who immigrated to Venezuela in the 50s. Um, and, you know, in fact, well, I mean, there's a lot of history, of course, the, colo- the colonies from Spain and, and, and all of that. But But really, the bulk of the migration to Venezuela didn't happen during the colonial era. It happened in the 1950s and 60s. Um, And that was because back then Venezuela was the fourth richest country in the planet because there was this huge post-World War II oil boom, right? And Venezuela was a very relatively free country, really, you know, with very little taxation, with very little regulation um, that was getting all this oil money too. And so there was just a lot of job opportunities and the population, you know, uh, know, there, there was just a huge demand for workers, and and people came from all over the planet, not just Europe, right? You know, there's Lebanese, Chinese, yeah. other Latin Americans. Um, and so Venezuela became this melting pot and the place of what I call the Venezuelan dream, not just the American dream. And, uh, you know, that's that's what that's, happened. Um,
0: that's interesting. So I, I actually, I bet a lot of people listening to this probably don't know this. I, I learned this actually through you, but... At, there, there's a thing as a Venezuelan dream and Venezuela, it seems like, had a lot of oil money right back then. What happened? What happened to the Venezuelan dream?
1: Yeah, what happened was first after the, after the 70s, there was just a stagnation in the Venezuelan economy. Like okay. GDP per capita per person production just didn't grow at all since the mid 70s until the late 90s for a period of almost 25 years. And that happened after all nationalization. Uh, where the government became so uh, intertwined with the rest of the economy, spending so much money from the oil industry that it just stagnated everything, and then that led to the election of Hugo Chavez, with right. a, a, an actual socialist, that um, ended up destroying our economy. Right, taking over people's farms, companies, you know, manufacturing plants, stores. And not just taking them away, but like the ones that were still private, the government would tell you how much you could charge for your products and your services. They would begin giving free things to everybody. Like I'm talking like free electricity, free gasoline, free food, sure. free apartments. And the money had to come from somewhere and it came from printing money. And that's how we had hyperinflation. Uh, huh. You know, I couldn't fit enough cash in my, in my pockets to buy anything. Um, you just got to you just got to
0: get bigger. You got to get bigger pockets, man. You know, what's what's what's, <laughs> exactly. what's interesting. So you said Hugo Chavez was a socialist. And then you said an actual socialist. So today in our political discourse, you know, the word socialist gets thrown around a lot by the right. The word fascism, it seems like it's thrown around a lot by the people on the left. Uh, what actually is a socialist? I'm going to define
1: it for you based on the way that Karl Marx defines it, right? Okay. Uh, and socialism is the system where the government owns the means of production and, and directs, centrally plans the economy. Obviously, there is no such thing as a light switch for socialism, right? Where you're socialist now, tomorrow you're not, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a, it's really a gradual uh, thing. Where on the one end, there's very little government, right? maybe Singapore something or you know something like that, Switzerland, you know, but much less than Singapore, and then on the other end is like North Korea, where mm. absolutely everything is owned by the government, and you don't even own your clothing, right? Um, right So Venezuela moved from very much on the free enterprise side to the socialism side very quickly. And that's why it's a really great natural experiment if you look at it from a, you know, an economist's perspective of what happens when you implement these policies. Um, obviously, it doesn't mean that everything is government-owned, but, yeah. but we move from an almost completely private economy to a very government-intervened economy.
0: So I'm curious about this. You used, you used Karl Marx's definition for socialism. What is the difference between socialism and communism?
1: Great. So communism is like
0: a high school AP econ class, but I'm curious. Yeah, you know,
1: it's it's always badly defined. People don't really know this. Nobody, even the people in the conservative movement don't define this well. But the, the their definition of communism and socialism is communism is the end goal of socialism, which in which there's no government and people voluntarily share mm. the product of their labor with strangers. Um, And and everybody has equal outcomes voluntarily. And that's why there's no need for government to redistribute things. And so communism cannot be achieved, because people will never give away the product or their labor to strangers voluntarily to guarantee equal outcomes, right? And so that's why it's always socialism, where the government forces you to. There is Hmm. this For some reason, because people think that communism is like more radical than socialism. People think that communism is the government doing these things, but it's the opposite. Communism has never happened and will never happen. And socialism is what you actually saw in the Soviet Union in North Korea, in Venezuela, Cuba. Um, Yeah.
0: That's interesting. So the definition is a little bit difficult to define. Are there like... Are people in our government today socialists? Like would you say that there are there are people in the federal government, would you say people running for Congress? There are there are there are actual people that you would define as socialists? I know some of them would define themselves, but I'm just curious because this is such a yeah. this is such like a I've been meaning to talk to you about this for a while, but this is like a common discourse, especially on the conservative side. And and again on the liberal side. The amount of times that I've heard the word fascism thrown out, like I want to also bring on somebody to talk specifically about that. But I'm curious, do you think that it's it's a legitimate threat in the United States today, assuming, of course, that you would think that it is a threat? Uh,
1: Yes, Um, I don't think everybody in the Democratic Party is a socialist, Uh, but I do think that there are certainly real socialists. You know, AOC, I think she's a real socialist. I think uh, Bernie Sanders, she's a real socialist. I think Lujano Omar is a real socialist. Um, I mean, AOC just came from meeting with the Venice with the, sorry, with the Colombian president, uh, the socialist guy who's friend of Hugo Chavez and Maduro right now in Colombia. I mean, she just came from South America from meeting with all these people that destroy their nation. Um, Bernie Sanders, history of supporting the Soviet Union. Um, you know, so there, there are real socialists. Um, I don't think there are a majority of Democratic politicians. You know, like, I I don't like the governor of New York State, uh, Kathy Hochul. I don't think she's a socialist. I think she's a big governor. Um, You know, I think she believes in bigger government, but she's not necessarily a socialist.
0: And is there a difference between democratic socialists, which I think people like Kyle Kalinske would describe themselves as, and other folks on the left, like Bernie Sanders, might say that he's a democratic socialist, and the socialism that you're talking about in Venezuela?
1: There's no difference. Well, I mean, the Venezuelan socialism came through democracy. Hmm. Uh, Venezuela had democratic socialism until it stopped being democratic. Uh, And it was Hmm. just as bad when it was elected than when, you know, the policies are the same. The difference is the means. I don't really care too much about their means if they're still going to destroy my country. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Allende, Salvador Allende, the former Chilean president, was perhaps one of the first democratic socialists, which is why Bernie Sanders was recently, September 11th, was also the anniversary of the coup against Agenda in Chile, 50 year anniversary this time, um, which lines up the same time as 9 11 here, uh, but this happened yeah. much earlier. Um, and you know, they, they all are so mad about Allende being overthrown because Allende was that for them, an inspiration. But they, people idolize Allende when he destroyed Chile. He caused hyperinflation. Everybody was fleeing. He was a complete Marxist Leninist, um, asset of the Soviets and the Cubans. Um, so, you know, the, those are threats. The democratic socialism is just the nice adjective, I think, for the, uh, you know, getting into power through elections, because everybody knows socialists are not going to have a revolution in the United States. There's no other form of socialism that could ever work here. But yeah, I don't I know- feel less threatened by it.
0: Okay, so I know, and I want to actually go back to your story, because the way that we got on this entire tangent was like, I'm curious about why you care about this issue specifically. And I know the audience is like, yeah. why, why does this guy care about immigration? We went from New York City to socialism and democratic socialism. But I am curious because I can hear somebody listening to this saying, Manu, ask Daniel about the fact that there are countries in Northern Europe that are often referenced as democratic socialist countries. Um, What is the difference and what are people in your mindset getting maybe wrong about the entire rhetoric and discourse around democratic socialism, this idea that maybe there are models of this that are effective?
1: Well, Well, now that we defined what socialism is, uh, we know what it is not, right? Mm. And that is, is not Norway. It's not all these things. I actually think we have a lot to emulate from Norway and Sweden and Denmark.
0: Interesting. Um, uh,
1: but those are not, you know, if Bernie Sand, this is why this discourse this really angers me because if you asked somebody on the far left in the United States, should we be more like Denmark? They will tell you yes. Okay. Do you want mm. school choice? Do you want lower corporate taxes? And do you want to balance the budget? Because that's all what Denmark does. Denmark how are, has school able, how, choice. Are,
0: how are they able to do yeah. that and balance, the, balance their, their sort of- By taxing
1: people. the poor. By mm. heavily taxing the poor through 23% sales tax. Do you want to impose a 23% sales tax in the United States? That's not what I hear. Tax the rich. You know, everything mm. can be paid by the top 1%. You know there was a recent paper on the American economic Review, which is the most prestigious economics journal in America. Uh, there are no conservatives okay i mean if I feel like people on the left think economics is like the conservative profession, economics is extremely socially liberal and, and very much on on the left now the academia at least mm. Um, mm. so so no no bias really europe is is uh less re- let me rephrase. There is less income redistribution in every single European country than there is in the United States from rich to poor. Really? That's, that's a shocking thing to say, right? Everybody would say, what? I, you know, I, all the rich pay all those taxes there and the poor get, no. In, in a, the difference is that in America, the poor barely pay any taxes. In mm. Europe, the poor heavily pay taxes. They're not getting tax revenue from the rich to give money to the poor. That's what we do, where the rich that's here in America, the rich pay all the taxes in so, Europe. they take your money and give it
0: back to you that's interesting, so the argument that you're forwarding is that countries that are perceived as democratic socialists by somebody like Bernie or AOC, the way that they're paying for all this is by taxing the poor. Just could you define two terms for me? What is what does everybody mean when they say tax the rich? Like who is the rich in the United States when they forward that specific concept? And when they say uh, tax the it's poor? It's whatever they wanted it to mean. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, no, let's let's give let's give it a little bit of a charitable interpretation. Like, it, do you think that they actually when folks say tax the rich, you think they mean anybody? Because from my conversations, what I've heard is specifically you go after sort of the 0.1% or the 0.001%. You know, you're top 400 um that's
1: nothing the issue mano is that that's yeah. that's not gonna that's not gonna finance the government even for one day out of 365 a year
0: okay. the math
1: just doesn't work even if we take a hundred percent of the income of the top one percent we cannot pay for medicare for all so this is, this is why the Nordic countries are very smart in that they have very low taxes on corporations and very high taxes on low-income workers, because they mm-hmm. understand uh, what in economics we call elasticity. And yeah. this is a very perverse way of understanding it, but they know corporations will move out of your country if you charge higher taxes. Low-income workers don't have the money to pack their bags and move, and so you tax them. Right.
0: So what's what's interesting about this conversation is I had I I think you might know him Amir Odom on a couple of I think it was now almost I think on episode seven, perhaps, and we got deep into criminal justice policy. And then basically, I had to hit the eject button because I'm tired of people in the podcast world, like going into conversations where they're not the experts. And I, I I mean, I studied AP econ, man, I might have gone through with a B minus, I would say, and then did not do econ at all. But I mean, you know, this stuff way better than I do. And what I was curious about, again, was. Trying to get your perspective because i I've seen you as somebody. the reason why I, like I wanted you on the conversation was because I feel like you're somebody that is actually nuanced enough to grapple with the arguments on both sides, and I wanted folks to understand your take on both socialism, democratic socialism, and I think what many people would ask is an emulation of democratic socialism from foreign countries and and putting all that aside because I can imagine some econ majors right now that might disagree with you saying, Manu, go further on this. I want to pull back for a quick second and ask you. Grandparents immigrated to Venezuela in the 50s from Italy and Spain. What happened next? And why is this something that you're incredibly passionate about, the the notion of of economics in the United States and specifically around immigration?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I became passionate about economics because I lived through the consequences of really bad policies, right? You know, not every economist lives through hyperinflation. <laughs> I did. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I initially didn't want to study anything with economics. I came into the PhD wanting to do monetary uh, theory and and uh, things related to the central bank and monetary policy. Oh, interesting. Um, and then I completely changed my mind because I kind of, it's like, economists already figure out how to control inflation. We already know how not to have hyperinflation. Like, I'm not going to change the world by changing things 0.01%. But right. Immigration is an area that is very important and where I think the United, you know, where I have personal experience and where I think the United States is missing out on so much economic potential.
0: So what what is your personal experience? Because you said that you've personally lived through hyperinflation, which means that the Venezuelan dream was abandoned very quickly. Like what, what happened? When did, when did you, when did you, you're, you're not, you weren't born in the US, right?
1: Right, no, no, no. I mean, i yeah. lived in Venezuela my whole life. Yep. I finished high school in, in Venezuela yep. and I got a full right scholarship to start in Indiana. Uh and that's how I came to the United States in twenty sixteen.
0: Um, gotcha. What was so, what was yeah. you, you went from Venezuela to Indiana. What what was that like?
1: Uh it was great. I love Indiana. Uh my favorite state. Um I really? Indiana's your favorite state? Yeah. Okay. What the okay. issue?
0: Yeah, it's no, people no, are very okay. kind. Are, are you doing, are you
1: hating on Indiana?
0: No, the reason why I said that is because I, I love the Midwest. I've driven through a lot of the Midwest. I've stopped at a lot of areas in the Midwest. I will say I've only been through Indiana when it's like fall or spring, cloudy, gray. And maybe it's just the time when I've been driving. But for some reason, man, Indiana is the one state where I associate dark gray clouds with. And it just it, 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 it felt a little bleary to me. I'm not hating on the people. I love Kansas. I love Iowa. Don't come at me. But for some reason, Indiana, I've only driven through it when it's dark, stormy, and rainy. So maybe there's a better time to run, drive through it.
1: I'll tell you, my first semester in college, I experienced three tornadoes. Three? In Indiana, three, yes. And then I never experienced any other tornado. Are there, are there any
0: tornadoes in Venezuela? <laughs> no. No, what, what, do guys, have,
1: what do you Oh what? man, we, we're so blessed with nature. Not only do we have the most oil, we have no, no natural disasters of any kind, we're great.
0: So you you like that okay as a Venezuelan would you say that you you actually let me ask you this do you feel a sense of patriotism towards Venezuela do you do you like do you feel like there was there's a sense of lost opportunity because the way that you describe it it feels like the country was set up for a lot of success like how do you deal with with that do you grapple with that at all do you feel like there was something lost there because you're describing it as a place that was set up for success
1: Yeah you know um I always think, uh, a little bit in like, what would the, what would my life be like? Yeah. what would the life of a lot of people be like had the socialist regime never taken power in Venezuela? And I think that I, all of my family would be together in Caracas where we all lived. Uh, now we're spread around three countries, four countries, actually, um, and, you know, we don't see each other. You know, my, my parents don't, are not in the United States. They're in Spain. Uh, my cousins are now in Spain, Italy, and other people in Venezuela. Uh, I'm here. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very sad. And it's not just me. I look at my, my high school graduation picture. Half of the class is out of the country and I can name you by face, which country they all went to. Um, yeah. and, and it's a really sad outcome of something that was really predictable. Um, mm. But people still voted for the their demise of their own country, which is why Venezuela is so special, right? It's different from Cubans. It's different from the Chinese, from the Soviets. They never elected those regimes. Nobody mm. elected Mao or, or Lenin. Nobody elected Castro. The, it, was, it was all violent revolutions. Venezuelans elected Hugo Chavez at first. That's mm. what makes Venezuela so... Um, such a warning, I think, for the democratic world that mm-hmm. demagogues can really destroy your country through the democratic process.
0: I don't think many people know that, that Venezuela, and you mentioned this, I think, earlier in our conversation, but it hadn't really hit for me, which is that socialism as an economic system was not forced upon it through state apparatus, but you're saying it was forced upon it actually through the people. And the people elected a socialist. Why do you think that is? Like what what do you well, think? Well the
1: state the, the state apparatus certainly forced the expropriations and they, the violence. They did,
0: they did. But the but the people elected associated. Right? Yes. What 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 do you think motivated people to vote for that vision of the country?
1: Well, as as I mentioned before, Venezuela was stagnated for a lot of time. And so even though by the 90s, it was still the richest Latin American country, even though it had not grown at all per capita for 25 years. Imagine what a, what an advantage we already had that we could stop growing for 25 years and nobody else was still close. Uh, that, that's how poor the rest of Latin America was. And that's why we had so many Colombians, Peruvians, Ecuadorians, Jamaicans, Haitians in Venezuela before all of this. Um, and now, now we don't. Uh, now there's Venezuelans in their countries um yeah and so you you know so that that economic um stagnation I think created a lot of frustration the mm. they a lot of people felt like the system wasn't working because it wasn't now it wasn't working because there there was a lot of statism already, not because there they needed to be more um but then there there's really a lot of resentment, right you know if you ask. You, you see any interviews of what happened right before Chavez got elected, of people asking them, why did you vote for him? Um, or, or what do you think needs to change? The, a lot of resentment against the political class that was very corrupt. It's true, there was a lot of corruption in Venezuela. Now there's a lot more corruption in Venezuela, and that looks like a joke, of course. And then a lot of resentment towards wealth. You know, people mm. saw others who were better off as, um, uh, as, as something that was evil, right? You know, the, the inequality was seen as a bad thing. Um, yeah, the, it, a lot of resentment, something that you don't see in America, at least not yet. Um, you know, you, you don't think of Jeff Bezos and you think, like, oh yeah, that Jeff Bezos, that that thief, And no, nobody thinks that way. I mean, they might disagree with his political uh, leanings and they might hate him for that. But nobody hates him because of the way he made his money, and everybody's like wants to learn from him in America.
0: There's three words that are sticking with me, Daniel, right now, which is resentment, um, uh, wealth, and anger. I would actually, I might actually push back a little bit because I feel like there seems to be a lot of anger, resentment, and a sense of condemnation towards wealth. Both within the conservative voting base and the liberal voting base like it seems like the one thing that in 2016 united both the the far left and the far right ideologically specifically speaking is populism like do you do, do you don't you don't feel like those conditions are out in the US right now cuz to me it seems like there's a lot of people that feel a certain sense that the system is screwing them
1: yeah, I mean, populism is certainly, you know, something that unites the extremes in the United States, but that does not equal uh, opposition to wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. met any conservative in the United States or self-identified Republican or whatever who right. says uh, there's too many rich people or I don't want there to be rich people. <laughs> even, even, you know, within like, the,
0: even, even within the Trump voting base?
1: N- not Not that would we'll ever hate wealth for its own sake. They they might hate specific wealthy people who use their money to advance causes they dislike, but that's very different from hating capitalism itself.
0: Right. Hmm.
1: That's what I would say at
0: least. So there's a process difference because what you're saying specifically is that the conditions in Venezuela are very unique to people had a genuine disdain for wealth. That's right. So right now, I mean, now so I'm much.
1: Confused. Hugo Chavez, Hugo Chavez used to saying his speeches: "Being rich is bad," hmm. Hmm. while well, he had was, a Rolex watch and in his in his wrist. By the
0: way, it, well, that's always the case. How, are, you saying, a, are you saying hypocrisy is a new thing? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I am mean,
1: you, mean. Am I saying that dictators steal money? Yeah. Yeah,
0: I know. Right. It's isn't that isn't that crazy? Well, again, what's sticking with me, though, is this notion that you said that, you know, he would say that, you know, people are stealing your money. But how would you say that's different than, you know, some politicians in our country saying the system is screwing you, that you have to stand up against the system or people saying that the forces of globalization have ruined your jobs or that we often hear a lot of discourse around the Rust Belt and the hollowing out of middle America that, I would say it seems like on the ground maybe it's not directly a disdain for wealth as just an entity and because I think a lot of people are aspiring for that like I don't think anybody really is like hating Jeff Bezos for just you know because he's worth a bunch of money but I think they specifically would probably critique him because they would say that the forces he ushered might have hollowed out the country. Do you see that that discourse on the rise? Like do you see that happening in America? Because yeah. that's what yeah, I'm kind of getting at.
1: Certainly there's a lot of anti-globalization um Feeling that um, that concerns me deeply because I'm a deep great believer in freedom of enterprise, freedom to trade. Um, mm. the, se- separate from the China discourse, which I understand it's a foreign policy issue, but like just the opposition to trade in general. I mean, the thing of like the, with Mexico. I mean, Mexico is the best other example. Like, oh, your jobs are all being shipped to Mexico. Th- this is just not true. This has nothing to do with NAFTA. Like Mm. this is all simplifications of reality, um, by, by people who have no idea what they're saying, they're not economists, they've never researched this issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of more things going on other than NAFTA. Um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to trade that people think that this is also, it's a political economical problem because you can more easily observe the costs than the benefits. Right. Yeah. When you impose a tariff and one factory opens and brings, I don't know, 100 jobs, it's very clear the benefit. Right. What you forget is that the whole country is paying now more for all their products, but everybody's paying so little extra. Right. Maybe one really? percent, one cent. But that's so much more money yeah. than what you're creating in the factory. It's spread costs and concentrated benefits. And that's yeah. just a really powerful political force.
0: So, there seems to be this growing, I think, consensus against what you're saying, at least in the popular discourse. There seems to be an easy critique against free trade. I think a lot of people are, quote unquote, critiquing what many would say is the neoconservative establishment, the neocons. You know, I think there's a lot of pushback against um, what it seems like a vision for economics that you would support, which is Ronald Reagan's vision, because it seems like there's a lot of forces, both in the conservative and Democratic Party, that are very much opposed to that vision. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's taking hold in this country right now? Given, especially, I mean, the fact that you lived through a country that went through processes that seem to at least have a prelude to what you're talking about.
1: Well, I think the the China competition has contributed to it um, because there's this feeling that our main trading partner was China until recently. It was um, the trade war stopped that. Um, and, and therefore, we were enriching our main enemy. And that's mm-hmm. correct. But that's separate from the issue of trade. You know, Adam Smith, one of the exceptions he made to free trade was actually national security.
0: Oh, and interesting. That's totally I did know fine. that.
1: Yeah, you know, Adam Smith was not a complete, we need to trade freely with the rest of the planet. No, that's not true. <laughs> I actually, just, his 300th birthday anniversary was uh, this this year. Uh, okay. We don't actually know the date because back then they didn't have birth certificates. We just know his baptism. By the way,
0: that, that, that's how you know you're an economics nerd, when you know that it was Adam Smith's 300th birthday anniversary.
1: Uh, it's, I I just got lucky because I went to an event. Don't give me
0: too much <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, But keep yeah. going because I want you to hammer on this point a little bit that do you think that there might be conflation between national security and Yeah, uh, I think it's totally trade. fine
1: to say, we need to restrict trade with China because of national security. Like, you know, we just imposed export restrictions on technology to China. Good. Now you need to understand that those restrictions will have cost on you, that you are mm-hmm. going to become poorer as a result of less trade with China. Now you might be willing to bear that cost because you feel like the security benefits are greater, What, wh- however you want to like Value this security, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not something I can value in dollars. What, how much security? Though effectively we are, because there's a dollar cost to the measure, mm-hmm. um and so that's that's what's important. I'm fine if people make that distinction, but you, you cannot look at me straight in the face and tell me, or a straight, with a straight face and tell me that less trade with China is going to make us richer. No, it's going to make us poorer. But it might be worth making us poorer because they will be, be poorer too. Mm. So, mm. if we get that, if we understand that, then there's another principle which is okay, there's a national security exception to free trade there's no national security concern with trade with Mexico or Canada or Europe or Japan, or a bunch mm. of the rest of the planet almost, so why don't we have free trade with the rest of the planet because the real the, you know this is i I, and I think a lot of Americans understand that deeply, but politicians don't, and that's why they hammer the China issue. Just like Trump did, when in reality they were putting tariffs on Japan, on hmm. Canada, on France, and, and on countries that you're like, Why are we putting tariffs on French wine? Like this is not yeah. a this is just stupid policy.
0: Well, that's because we gotta buy from Napa Valley. So, you know, um <laughs> because when, when- there
1: are lobbyists. This is all special interest.
0: Well, it all comes down to those special interests, you know. There's, there's this um, interesting notion. The other day, I was watching Ro Khanna. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the All In podcast, but Ro Khanna was. I I know
1: Representative Ro Khanna. Ro Ro Khanna is that who you're
0: talking about? Yeah, Ro Khanna. Yep. So Representative Ro Khanna, the congressman from uh, that represents uh, district in Silicon Valley. So he was at the All In Summit, which is this pretty interesting podcast of four sort of Silicon Valley. Uh, philanthrop- uh, philanthropists, venture capitalists, etc. And one of the things that he talked about is that there was this consensus in the 90s by uh, sort of the free market establishment. Um, and these are his words. So I'm, I'm curious what your thought is on this. And he said that at that time, and especially leading up to especially 2016 with President Trump's election, that the consensus was that you got to maximize every dollar, every penny, as you're saying, every cent, right? And that free trade, uh, especially by outsourcing jobs and outsourcing manufacturing and outsourcing work to foreign entities like China, like India, that companies were able to maximize their profits. And that, you know, he said that, you know, frankly, companies would say, nobody wants to buy a $2,000 iPhone. They want a $400 iPhone, right? And that trade facilitates that competitive advantage. But then he said, well, the problem now is that we've completely by outsourcing and by focusing on trade uh, in foreign countries and by increasing sort of, especially a trade deficit with a place like China, that we've completely hollowed out jobs, factory work, that we need to bring it back. How do you respond to sort of this increased desire for insourcing, for rebuilding manufacturing? That that Because it seems like a very dominant political strain that seems to unite everybody, at least the people I see on Twitter. You, you know, Manu, the
1: thing is that Regardless of what they say or even what they do, even if they Mm. get away with implementing other policies, they're never going to achieve their goal.
0: What do you think? The reality is
1: that they're never going to put Americans back to work at coal mines and steel mills. That's never going to happen. No matter Mm. if you stop trade completely with all countries on the planet, it's not going to happen. Why is that? Um, Well, first, you know, I think the problem is people idealize the past. These were extremely dangerous jobs, let's begin with. Extremely high, you know, uh, workplace uh, safety issues. So, if anything, you could say we've exported work safety issues to other countries, which, yeah. oh, you know, the human rights, and this is where the left gets mad and, and all of that. Look, if people do things voluntarily, I'm, I'm, I'm usually fine um, with, within certain guidelines. Um, but so, so that's on one end. On, on another end, there, there are, Only thing they're going to achieve is make us poor. And that's fine. You know, maybe that's what they want. You know, some people think that it's okay to go back to the 50s where people were half as rich as they are today. And they Mm -hmm. think they were richer because everybody had a house, a very tiny house with not the appliances we have today. You know, people idealize the past and that's a regular human feeling. So that's a problem. And then two, they, they talk about the trade deficit as if it was something we're losing. Uh, Let me explain what this concept means. The trade, you know, we export products and we import products. When we export um, products that are worth more than what we import, we have a trade surplus. That means we're selling more than what we're buying. We're saving that difference. Um, If we import more than we export, we have a trade deficit. But the right. money has to come from somewhere, right? Where, otherwise, how do we pay for imports, right? Where is the money coming from? Well, the money is coming from all these foreigners that get those dollars from our mm. imports, right? We pay them in dollars and they invest them back in the United States because we're the most attractive country to invest in. What's mm. interesting about the US trade deficit from a world economics perspective is that this is the only nation that's been able to run a trade deficit for so long. Mm. Most countries cannot. And that's because we have the world's reserve currency. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to invest in America. Everybody, everybody wants to hold these pieces of paper that really mean nothing. Because the economy is not about the pieces of paper that are US dollars. The economy is about the products.
0: And right? the assets.
1: So we, we are getting a free ride from China. That's what people don't understand. The trade deficit from, with China is actually the worst thing that can happen to China. Because it means people are like, China owns our debt. Which we can stop paying if we wanted to. They literally oh. hold pieces of paper and we hold assets. Mm. They don't own anything. They depend on us, not us on them.
0: What would you tell President Trump? Because it seems like somebody like President Trump, I mean, it seems like what you're talking about, which is selling a vision of the past you know, talking about the fact that maybe a trade deficit is actually a good thing, which is an interesting sort of argument that you're forwarding. I mean, you know, the one thing that it seems like unites Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, Bernie Sanders, President Trump, AOC, Matt gates you name your pick, the pick of the litter, <laughs> is 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 exactly what you're criticizing. So yeah. what would you tell them? Well, look, if if trade is a bad
1: thing, why do we have trade between states?
0: Why do well, we they have would trade? Say we don't care, they would say we don't care about the everyday people. That all we care no, about no, is no, our bottom No, 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 no,
1: wait, wait, wait. If trade, if America trading with China means fewer jobs for America, does California trading with Indiana mean fewer jobs for California? What's the difference? Oh, China's a much poorer country than us. Oh, so if it's about income level, you believe in free trade with Europe, right? No, they don't either. So you have to be consistent in your beliefs. If trade is bad, trade is bad in all cases, not in, not, or unless it's for a national security reason, right? Which I made, right? But these people would, would oppose the imports if they came from Mexico too. So, or, or Vietnam or whatever other country. Um, you know, the, the, the reason we become richer that really, you know, I taught it this summer, uh, a course at, at Columbia for undergrads and I, uh, it's intro level econ. And I was telling them if you can get away with three concepts from this class is opportunity cost, comparative advantage, and um, specialization. Mm. These are all intertwined, right? Right? It means that you know, if there was no trade, if you were the only person in the world, you have to do everything for yourself, you have to be a farmer, you have to be make your own clothes. You have to do everything, no matter how good you are at one thing. Once you get more people, everybody can focus on what they do best. And Mm. we in America need to focus, we need to ensure that people focus on what they do best with their God-given abilities, with our Mm. capital, with our infrastructure. And so if there are unemployed people, how do we match them to jobs that are with their skills? You know, we we Mm. excel, we might not excel at... Uh, making toys or making cell phones, but we excel at intellectual property. We excel mm. at finance or we'll say, oh, that's not real. They pay us money to do it. It's real. Um, mm. you, you know, we you, we excel at making airplanes. We excel right. at in the military industry. Uh, mm. We excel in so many areas that we need to focus. That's our comparative advantage. And we need to lean in on those. things. energy. We excel on energy in agriculture. We do too.
0: Mm. So... It's interesting. I mean, a lot of the things that you're you're talking about that we excel in are both services and goods, right? And they're industries. And your focus would be let's focus on those things. What do you tell, you know, the farmer in the Midwest that is currently, you know, experiencing massive drops in prices, or the person that used to work at a steel mill that isn't being retrained? Like what are the sets of policies that you have for folks like that? Because there is a real contingent in this country, left and right. I mean, again, I'm seeing this. One of the interesting things about the hopeful majorities, you get to see where a lot of there are unifying coalitions across ideology. And one of the unifying coalitions, it seems like in the country, is economic populism, is this true deep resentment against not only the economic establishment, but against policies like free trade, against globalization, a belief that they've been left behind, as President Trump often says. How do you respond to that impulse?
1: Well, I think, well, I think we need to really revive conservative optimism and, and a coalition that is very different from the populist one, but it's the complete opposite, right? It's, it's, it's still very popular. You know, populism is not necessarily a popularity. Um, it's, it's really, you know, you mentioned the farmer. Farmers are actually great are, are, you know, relatively do good in America. America is actually a net exporter of farm, farming, uh, goods and, and products. Uh, we feed the world. Um, or or corn is exported, or soybeans, like this is all exports. We need more free trade. The farmers want more trade. The farmers Mm -hmm. were one of the main pushers for more trade with Canada. You know, we export soybeans to China. They were hurt by Trump's trade war with China. Rural Mm -hmm. America did not benefit from the trade wars. Um, And so on the other hand, you know, we have these terrible subsidies, the farm bill, that is... You know everybody who does not know about the farm bill think we're subsidizing the poor American farmer when in reality it's the costing of act- Hollywood actors that don't actually have a farm getting a bunch of millions of dollars in farm subsidies um hmm. and people get paid not to farm it's 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 terrible structure waste of money. the farmers uh-huh. don't get it it's big corporations that get the farm subsidies um hmm. Anyway, so mm-hmm. we, we need to get rid of these regulations. We need to expand trade with other countries. And what do you tell to people who, you know, you mentioned people from the steel mill? Well, first, this this has been happening for many decades. Um, I think the real solution is education. You know, we, we have a still a segment of the population that has not finished high school. We have high school graduates that are not getting a good education relative to other countries. And so they don't get good opportunities. You know, Mm -hmm. education at the high school level is so much better in many European countries, and that's a problem for us, that we need to learn Mm -hmm. from them. And it's not because we spend less money, which is where the left gets it wrong. We actually spend more money than any of them. It's really about how you spend money, what the structure of the system. Mm -hmm. You know a good education is not made from having, you know, a rich school. A good education is good because you have good teachers, because you have, you know... Uh, a better learning method. Um, And I think we need to lean in on that. We need more school choice. Um, Mm. We need more technical schools. We need colleges that maybe don't require you to take all these electives to get a degree so that you get 120 credits, you know, more flexibility in the regulation. All of that is at the state level.
0: So you mentioned this sort of feeling of optimism, right? And this notion of education. Do you think the American dream is still alive?
1: Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think that if you, uh, you know, get an education, if you work hard, um, if you, this is a key, you just like I mentioned comparative advantage before, if you, you need to find your comparative advantage, and I see it from a religious perspective, everybody has a God-given talent, everybody has God-given abilities, and it is your purpose in life to find God's mission for you. That is what I interpret is your comparative advantage. Uh, and, and you so, think that's
0: and you think that's the key to accessing the american dream
1: that's the key to accessing your the american dream a lot of people are just lost years trying to find what they want to do who they want to be uh what are they best at what job are, are they good at doing and they're stuck in jobs that they don't like they're stuck in jobs that you know i don't know if this is the the path for me um and so mm. w- we need to help people i think that doesn't necessarily mean the government but we need to have
0: a better conversation about how do people find what they're best at doing? Purpose, hope, optimism. I mean, part of the reason why we, again, built the hopeful majority is because I think a lot of people in this country, I think the majority of people are trying to actualize it. But I think oftentimes somebody would say and push back and say like, well, yeah, I mean, you can find your purpose, you can find your desire, but there are real structural issues that seem to be holding me back. And that seems like a common impulse in this country. Well, um, I think
1: that's, that can be true, too, though.
0: Okay. Well, if it's true, then what what, what part of that analysis do you think is true? Because I think a lot of people would push back in that way.
1: I mean, it, it, I think it's true that the American dream is alive. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, that the government is not putting obstacles uh, right. in, in our way. You know, uh, America has much, you know, I guess this is a recurring topic among people who will live in free enterprise, but America regulates and licenses professions much more than any other developed country. Um, Not any other, but like Mm -hmm. more than many others. Um, And we don't need to. We impose so many silly regulations that I mentioned um, on the farmers, on trade. Um, Like we we need to get the government out of the way of people. We need to make sure that they can access whichever school they want. Um, You know, another issue, and this might be much more nerdy, but. Even though we have generally low taxes, that doesn't mean we have what we call effective marginal taxes that are low. Okay? Right. With this, I mean, this doesn't necessarily imply taxes, but it's also about the welfare system. We have uh, an entitlement system, a welfare system, and a tax system that intertwine, mean that as you earn more income, you lose access to programs and You know, you lose Medicaid, you lose housing vouchers, you lose um, the child tax credit, all these things that mean that you have a huge disincentive to work. And Mm. so I think we need to change the structure of our programs, not necessarily how much we spend. I certainly would love to cut government spending, but even spending the same we spend, just changing the structure such that- your thought would be creating the
0: incentives to work.
1: Exactly. You know, so that people now, don't lose their benefits as much.
0: What's your advice right now to somebody that's listening about how to find that purpose, that like that that sense of direction? Because I think I think you're right to an extent. I mean, I think a lot of people would again push back in, in political discourse, and that's the exact point of the hopeful majority is let's have those nuanced conversations and dialogues. But uh, what is your advice to somebody in terms of trying to find their purpose? Especially somebody that might be young listening to this right now.
1: Well, uh, number one, you need to pray, um, and you need to think very deeply, um, you know, think, think of the experiences you've had, things of the, you know, and you need to try things, uh, you need to have internships, you need to try new jobs and, and don't get stuck there and don't think that, you know, never, never think badly of yourself, um, always be optimistic, um. Leaning on your family, if, if they can support you in any way, like, you know, your family knows you perhaps even better than, than you know yourself. And, and the advice of the, of the people around you are, is a great uh, support to try to find what you're best at, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't, you know, there's these videos of like the people who sing really amazingly and they don't know they sing well until their mom walks in on them and they're like, oh my God, you sing so incredible. you you know, so sometimes you need an external actor to come and and push you. And so leaning on your friends and family, I think is also good advice.
0: One of the questions that I ask everybody before we wrap up the conversation is what is your why? Because we've asked this of of presidential candidates, of of celebrities, of economists like yourself, of intellectuals, because I think having the answer to that why is really important. And I think especially folks that are not religious who might say, pray, what do you mean you tell me to pray? I mean, how's God going to deliver a job to me? Like. What is your, what is your why? Like what keeps you going?
1: Mm. Well, you know, as m- many things really keep me going. Um, I think that God put me on the earth with a purpose and that purpose, given the experiences I've had in my life, is to protect uh, people's individual freedoms as much as I can, and especially to protect America, um, which I think is also a, a nation that has been blessed by God as the beacon of freedom and opportunity for everybody around the world that doesn't have that freedom and opportunity and that desires to do so. And I will do everything that I can possibly do uh, throughout my life to try to expand freedom for people around the planet. And that's, I, feel, I know that this is like, wow, this is like a huge thing that you're never going to achieve. And I know it, but I feel like I'm just one but piece in a big puzzle of, that needs to do their part.
0: That's the point of ambition, man. And I think I think that's especially important. It's obvious that you're incredibly passion inspired about this work. I just have to ask you, you mentioned, you know, growing up and going to high school in Venezuela, only coming to the United States in 2016. And suddenly you have this deep, love and desire for America, was it hard? Do you feel like you've let go of something in the past? How do you sort of reconcile, like, the fact that you spent, what, what was it, maybe 18 years in, in Venezuela? And like how do you reconcile these two different worlds and visions?
1: You know, it's sad because you kind of miss something you never had, right? Hmm. Uh, you know, you miss you miss a place, but then you think, Oh, wow. Imagine if I could visit, you know, I go and then I, I can already like get, I already get stressed just of the thought of visiting. And I'm like, Oh, there's no water. There's no electricity. <laughs> Who's going to rob me? <laughs> Who's going to kidnap me? Um, and so I don't have a desire to go, but I wish I could. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you, you, all of it, all Venezuelans feel very sentimental about this because we used to be a really patriotic country. Um, I you know, I'm I'm still very patriotic. I love Venezuela. Um I bond with people who've also lost their countries. And mm. it's a really sad experience, which is why I think Americans need to love America. Because mm. maybe one day you won't be able to to have that America, right? Like I don't have Venezuela anymore. Um and so it's important to love your country and to work to to improve it.
0: Well, there's a whole nother conversation we could have, and we might have to have, again, where we talk about patriotism and what it means to be somebody that loves their place. But I think your story is really interesting because it speaks to the fact that you're not just saying this stuff. It's that you feel like you've lived it, and so your aspirations are guided by that. And the reason why, again— I'm so passionate about this specific work is because I think we need to start humanizing people. I think we need to start giving people context. We need to share our stories. We need to understand why Daniel believes this. Maybe it's because of his life and maybe we might have something to learn from your perspective. So Daniel DiMartino, thank you for coming on The Hopeful Majority. Thank you, Manny. Thank you so much to Daniel for joining The Hopeful Majority. As we ended on the note, that our purpose, our why, is especially important at this moment because I think people across the country are looking for that. We need a sense of direction. People need a livelihood. And remember, if you disagree with parts of the conversation, drop that in the comments. If you liked the conversation, drop that in the comments. If you're on Spotify, Apple, remember to leave a like or a review. If you're on YouTube, subscribe because we've got a hopeful majority to build and we need to build that together. I'll see you on the next episode.